We've had a wonderful 75 minutes already, counting the prayer in the back room this morning. A lot of the Word of God, and I hope that your hearts have already been convicted and pricked and your minds instructed and reminded of the things that are dear to us. Thank you for all that have participated already. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And we shall find that the Apostle John, in all five chapters, but in particular chapters 3 and 4, emphasized to us a wonderful evidence for the assurance of eternal life. This chapter will say that you can assure your heart before Him. The next chapter will say that you can have boldness in the day of judgment. Those are strong statements. And they are substantiated in these verses. My brethren, I am capable, but I don't. Prepare to preach like men are taught to preach the last hundred years, and especially like men preach today. I could, online or in books, search an index of stories so that I could share stories with you. I could get you in tears this morning hearing stories of brotherly love pulled out of McKnight's 10,000 sermon illustrations or other books that preacher boys buy. But I don't do that. Sometimes I'm sorry for your sakes. Usually I'm not. All I know how to do and all I want to do is preach the Word. I polluted my soul last night with watching two popular preachers preach two consecutive convocations at Liberty University in front of five figures of so-called Christians. And I am resolved again that I have a three-word job description and I will try to do it faithfully for the Lord's honor. And if you love the Lord and you love His Word, I hope that every word that I read from these two chapters will be precious to you. And my explanation of them simply to give the sense. I am preaching topically the assurance of eternal life. But today it will be expositionally because we look at two chapters and we go through them verse by verse. I'm sorry that I don't have any jokes to start this service off with like Joel does every service. I don't have any anecdotes. I don't have any illustrations or storytelling to go through. I'm not going to tell you what I did in the basketball court or in Vietnam. I've got the Bible. Amen. And I hope you love it. In my flesh, I know that I'm a boring preacher. In my spirit, I hope that you'll love the words of the living God. I tremble before them. The emphasis on this great subject tells me that it's a worthy subject for you and for me. And I trust that we will humble ourselves before God's Word. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living Word of God, I pray your blessings by your powerful Spirit the spirit of Pentecost, to bless the written words of God to the benefit of these people. Heavenly Father, 
Open now our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to thy words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me read the first ten verses. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Amen and amen. We love the adoption of God, don't we? That we, special adoption, predestinated adoption, we're brothers in here in more than just some formality of language. We're brothers in here by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the predestinated adoption of God through Jesus Christ of us to Himself. It's an incredible concept. And so the Apostle, inspired with these words, says, Behold what manner of love. This is indescribable, incomprehensible, unbelievable love that God would choose us to be His children. You know this passage well. All I need to do is point you to the third verse. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. These first ten verses teach that the evidence of eternal life is living a righteous life and not sinning continually, habitually, without fear, guilt, shame, or confession. If you want to lay claim to the wonderful, fantastic, otherworldly love of the adoption of God in verses 1 and 2, and what we shall be for eternity is to be like the Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to fit into verse 3. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. So we need to purify our lives. We need to purify our minds. We need to purify our hearts. We need to cleanse our hands. And we need to live a righteous life. Because He is pure. If we are the brothers of Christ, and we're the sons of God, and Christ is pure, and God is pure, we must be pure, or we don't show any kinship. Verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin, 
transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. You want a definition for sin? It's breaking God's law. God says, do things this way, don't do that. We violate the law, that is sin. Sin sends us to hell. Sin causes death. Sin causes death in three different aspects. Verse 5, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Sin breaks God's law. Jesus died to take away sins. Jesus has no sin. How can you or I sin? You say, well, well, Brother Crosby, we do sin. Yes, we do. John's already admitted that. One eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 2.1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we do sin. You say, well, why does he use language like this? Because he expects us to rightly divide the word of truth, and he's told us to do that in a pastoral epistle. Right. If, if pastors would read the pastoral epistles, they wouldn't have any problem with the language here. We know that it cannot mean what you think it means at a first reading. There's only a two-step approach to understanding the Bible. First of all, rule out what it doesn't mean. Does the Bible tell us that that is the first rule of Bible study? It does so in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, where the word private means separate, unique, individual, or different. So by reading these verses, and it says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, we know that it can't mean they never sin at all, because the Bible mitigates against that by teaching us that we do sin. Peter sinned, David sinned, the best of men sinned in the Bible. But they didn't stay in that sin. They repented of that sin, they repudiated that sin, they turned away from that sin, and they lived righteously. Did they live righteously? Perfectly. No, they didn't. And so when it says in verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Can anyone do righteousness perfectly? No. Has anyone ever done righteousness perfectly? No. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. So in both cases, whether it's doing righteousness or sinning or committing sin, it's not referring to doing it perfectly. It's referring to doing it habitually. Are there men that have habitually lived their lives righteously? How about Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1? Were they blameless before the law? Does God say they were blameless? Were they perfectly, absolutely blameless? No, no man can be. The Bible says, for there is no man that sinneth not. But they, they continued and persisted in a path of righteousness, confessing their sins as they went along, and God looked at that as blameless living, perfect living, what matches up with this passage right here. So when it says in verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, we all commit sin, but what do you do when you sin? Do you confess that sin? Before you confess it, are you smitten in your conscience? I shouldn't have done that. Oh, where does that come from? That's good. You repudiate that sin. Can you mock that sin? Do you turn from it? Do you take steps in your life to avoid sinning again in that way? 
That shows that you're doing righteousness and you're not committing sin like it is intended and understood here in these verses. These verses are describing a habitual lifestyle of sin without godly fear, without guilt or change. There's no man that doesn't sin at all. It is a continual doing of one thing or the other. The children of God repent when they sin, and their repentance is not to be repented of. They don't go back on their repentance other than exceptionally. This is dealing with a course of life. It is the only way that it fits the rest of Scripture. There is not a problem in doing what we have just done. I have just given you the sense of these verses, and if you don't accept the sense that I've just given you, you are in confusion, and you're opposing the Word of God because the Bible teaches that we all sin. But Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and clear us from all iniquity if we confess our sins. And that is taught throughout the whole Bible. So verses 1 through 10, and I have been over good works enough to leave this passage. There, it, it basically says the same thing in various terms, beginning at verse 3, that we should purify ourselves because God is pure, that Jesus was manifested to take away sins in verse 5, and in Him is no sin, so how can we sin? Verse 6, if we're abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't sin. Because whosoever sinneth hath not seen him nor known him. But if you're abiding in Jesus Christ and loving and delighting in Jesus Christ, you will consequently hate sin. The closer you are to Christ, the more you'll hate sin. The more you love God, the more you'll hate sin. Ye that love God, or ye that fear God, hate wickedness. Verse 9 is helpful. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. That is, he does not habitually commit sin. He doesn't live in sin. He doesn't delight in sin. He gets away from sin. He repents of his sin. He confesses and repudiates his sin and turns to righteousness. He does not live in sin as a course of life. For his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. He cannot sin habitually. He cannot sin continually. He cannot sin without guilt, grief, shame bothering him because he has a seed in him. And that seed is the new man created by regeneration. His seed remaineth in him because he is born of God. When we're born of God, we're given a new nature. When you were born of your parents, you were given an old nature. That old nature sins, loves sins, and hates God. The new nature loves righteousness, hates sin, and loves God. And we've got that seed in us, and it will not let us persist and continue in sin. We cannot say to someone that their name is in the book of life for past performance if they are continuing in a course of sin. When David was confronted about nine months of hiding his adultery and murder, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Did he mean it? Absolutely he meant it. Somebody will say, well, he only said it because he was caught. Sometimes we need to get caught to face the reality of our sins. And that was the case with David. David confessed it. And God said, the Lord, Nathan said about the Lord, the Lord hath forgiven thee. And you can read in Psalm 51 how serious David was about his confession, but he didn't continue in it. When he was confronted with the word of God, he humbled himself and admitted that he was guilty and deserved to die. We need to move on. I hope that you understand that ninth verse. 
that when we're born again, we have a seed in us. That's our new man. That's a new nature that God has given us. And because of that new nature, there is part of us that wells up in anger and frustration, shame and guilt and power against sin. And we want to feed that new nature. And the Bible tells us to put the new one on, put the old one off. The old one loves this world, hates this church service, would rather be out having fun right now. My old nature loves fun as much as anyone's old nature in here because guess what? We're all related that way too. We're all the children of Adam and the devil. But my new man is totally opposite. My new man heard Psalm 63 this morning and rejoiced and wished that I could go home and crawl under the covers. Why? So I could meditate on him in the night watches again and tell him how much I loved him without anybody bothering me. I hope you understand all that. There's a new man inside of me and an old man, and if the person that says Christians are schizophrenic, yep. Read, read Romans chapter 7, verse 10 to the end of the chapter, and you'll say, that is schizophrenia. But you know what? Schizophrenia is a good thing when you're a Christian. If you don't have that new man inside of you, grieving you and warning you and reminding you and hating sin. Listen, have you ever, oh, have you ever sinned when you were living in the flesh and gone home and realized that what you thought should have been the greatest pleasure of your life brought you frustration, anger, disappointment, shame, and guilt, and it wasn't worth it? Right. Who's telling you all that? The world gets up and does it again. Hopefully we crawl out of bed or wherever we're at and we get down on our knees and say, Lord, forgive me for doing that. I was wrong. I took what was right and perverted it and it profited me not. Verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest. The word manifest means revealed or made known. We can see the children of God made known and the children of the devil made known by two things that are in the second half of verse 10. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. A person that doesn't live a righteous life as an ordinary, continual, habitual course, of course they make mistakes, and of course they slip and slide because we're in this world. However, they get up and go forward again in the path of righteousness. They're revealing themselves that they're the children of God. If they don't get up and they stay in a course of sin and they don't like truth, and they don't like to be corrected, and they don't like the Word of God, and they show a love for the world that is hardly ever broken, they're showing that they are the children of the devil. Then it says, Neither he that loveth not his brother. So there are two evidences in First John chapter 3 for the assurance of eternal life. If you want to be sure that you have been adopted by God, then you're going to purify your life. Can you today... And it is a choice. It is a choice. Is there a God in heaven? Is he half? This is the way I used to reason with myself in my late teen years when the Lord got a hold of me. Is he half as great as the Bible describes him to be? If there is a God and he is half as great as the Bible describes him to be, then he deserves my best. He deserves me purifying my life. He deserves me plucking out my right eye when it leads me to lust. He deserves me cutting off my right hand when it leads me to sin. 
He deserves me purifying myself by doing what he says is pure and hating what is impure in his judgment and in his Bible. Are you willing to make that choice? I am preaching on the assurance of eternal life and it leads into so many parts of our lives. The Lord wants us to live pure lives. We are told in 1 Peter 1, in verses that I did not read this morning, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Same thing. Same doctrine. We're dealing with a holy God, and if he is half as holy as the Bible describes him to be, you had better be holy, and I had better be holy. So what in our lives is not holy? Get it out of your life. What in your thoughts is not holy? The thought of foolishness is sin. Get it out of your mind. What affection do you have? Get rid of it. Love the things of heaven. Set your affection on things above so that we are thinking holy thoughts. And you can purify yourself and you must purify yourself. And it's a choice. God has worked in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And it is your job to work that out with fear and trembling. And so the first ten verses. But then verses ten through the end of the chapter are about loving the brethren. Neither he that loveth not his brother. If you don't love your brother, then you're not a child of God. And so we enter into the next verses that speak about this great subject of brotherly love. I'm going to preach to you the Bible. Can you embrace... I've said this once already. Can you, will you, embrace the doctrine, the concept, the rule of embracing and loving and helping and serving every other person in this assembly? This is the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Purifying our lives in holiness and then loving every other member in this assembly. They were handpicked by God to bless you and to try you. 1 Corinthians 12.18 tells me that. That they were God's pleasure to put them here in this assembly. Verse 11. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Are we taught to love one another and to love your neighbor in the Old Testament? Yes, indeed. But was it emphasized as much as it is in the New Testament by Jesus Christ? No. Was it ever illustrated in the Old Testament like it's illustrated in the New Testament by Jesus Christ? No. So, John, if you read this epistle, will say, I'm giving you an old commandment. Then the next verse, I'm giving you a new commandment. You say, does he talk that way out of both sides of his mouth? Well, you know, if you look at 2.7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment. Verse 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. If you go read the Lord Jesus Christ in John 13, he says he's giving you a new commandment. But it's an old commandment. It's to love your neighbor. But when the Lord Jesus Christ taught it, when John teaches it here, he focuses it down to the other church members because he describes them, describes it as brotherly love. So it's love towards your brethren. Because inside these walls, or inside our membership, 
There should be a camaraderie. There should be an esprit de corps. There should be mutual love, affection, and desire for one another that exceeds any group outside these walls or outside of our membership. Church is not just when we're here inside these four walls. It is the body created by God the Holy Spirit baptizing all of us members together into one body that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of and we are all the individual parts of and we should all love each other like your bodily parts love each other and you should be protecting all bodily parts like you do your body. And so the analogy of the human body for the body of Christ or a local church is used throughout the New Testament. But this is a commandment. This is the message. This is the doctrine of God that we should love one another. Verse 11. When it, I can't leave 11 yet. One another. One. How many is that? One. It's you. Another. How many is that? One. But it's the rest taken one at a time. You know I love this expression. This expression is really serious. And if you, if you went high enough in math, and trust me, I had to learn it later. Okay? If you went high enough in math, permutations and combinations, Take this and just explode it. Do you know that in this room, there are 15,000? 15,000 one another relationships? Well, we're a mega church. <laughs> don't, don't laugh too long because it means we've got a lot of work to do. I'm a one. And you're another, and you don't know who I'm talking to, because I'm talking to all of you. And I'm saying the same thing to each of you. That is an incredible concept. If you know, if you just take A and B, then A and B, there's one relationship, but if it's a one another relationship, it's A toward B and it's B toward A, so we have two from two. I don't know if I can do this mentally, but if we go to three, then you've got relationships between A and B, B and C, and A and C, okay? There's three. But you've got A toward B, you've got B toward A, you've got A toward C, C toward A, B toward C, and C toward B. Ooh, uh, it's getting... I'm sweating. Now, if we go to four, and I'm not going to do four. four. You young people, I've done four, haven't I? Didn't I pull crackers out of a box or something and put them on a coffee table, get down on my hands and knees? And sh- it's incredible. It, it, boom! This ain't no mega church. For all of you that are listening, this is no mega church. We have about 150 present this morning, but there's 15,000 one another relationships in here. And I hope that by 311, verse 311 of 1 John, you understand that it's you toward each other member in here. What if a church really practiced that every member really went after the other members and the higher members? condescended to men of low estate so they put their emphasis on getting down to the lower members so that we were all pulling ourselves together and all pulling ourselves up. Did we just sing something about, Lord, help us to improve our little stock? Do you know what a church can accomplish when we do that? Do you know where the power for it comes from? God's love for us and the Spirit inside us. We can all do it. God's worked in us both to will and to do. Second time I've said it, and we're to work that out, that salvation out with fear and trembling. Brotherly love. 
Is there any outstanding wrong that I have toward any of you? Get me between services. I want our relationships to be right one to another. Lord, forgive us where we have through neglect, where we have through selfishness, through pride, through laziness, through hypocrisy, not loved one another as we should. Help us to love as you have loved us. Help us to love others as we love you. Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. So that's a child of the devil from verse 10. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. He was envious. He didn't like good Abel. Good Abel got commended in public by Almighty God. And that just irritated Cain that Abel, his little brother, got commended by God, so he got irritated and killed him for it. Does that ever happen? Where we get envious of one another? Especially if we don't think they deserve some blessing in their life? Lord, save us. Marvel not, verse 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. The world's going to hate us because of the children of the devil, and they haven't been taught the love of God. Verse 14, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Do you want to know if you're born again? I do. I want to know that if I've been born again. Well, it tells me we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. The more you love the brethren, the more certainty you can have that you are born again. This is the Word of God to us right here in this passage. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. He's still a dead man in trespasses and sins. According to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he has not passed from death into life because this powerful change that causes us to love one another when we're selfish, proud, lazy, and hypocritical by nature, when we're hateful and hating one another, living in malice and envy, Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, is changed. Love is powerful. That's why the Bible wants to connect faith with love. Don't just believe the truth. Believe the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Because it is unfeigned love of the brethren that really puts legs to your faith and shows your faith to be real. It is the, it is the stronger evidence. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And what if I had all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have charity? What is my faith worth? Nothing. Some of the Bible's best statements about the assurance of eternal life are right here in this chapter and the next chapter. This rule has so much throughout the pages of Scripture. What is brotherly love? It is very difficult without using slides to let you visualize a definition that's long. But let me try. I'm going to go very slow. I have taken a, I have taken a bunch of Bible verses that describe love and tried to condense them down into a sentence that hopefully we can mentally get our minds around. Because I can stand up here and foam away about brotherly love, but if we don't define it, what we just leave here with some word. What is brotherly love? 
It is cheerful and fervent. That means you're glad to do it and you're passionate about it. It is cheerful and fervent, burden and desire. A burden means you feel a sense of obligation, a weight of responsibility, but yet you want to do it on your own because it's a desire. Did the Apostle Paul say, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow? Okay, those are the kind of verses I've tied together here. It is cheerful and fervent, burden and desire for the well-being of God's children that results in sacrificial and selfless action to get outside yourself, meaning your comfort zone, and violating your space and violating your calendar, to get outside yourself, to serve them in personal humility for their comfort in life, encouragement in heart, and perfection before Christ. Well, I didn't hear any amen, so I'll go back to the drawing board tomorrow morning. It is a cheerful and fervent burden and desire for the well-being of God's children that results in sacrificial and selfless action to get outside yourself to serve them in personal humility for their comfort in life, encouragement in heart, and perfection before Christ. Did the Apostle Paul say, the more I love, the less I am loved? Is that pretty sacrificial? Did the Apostle Paul say the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children? Because he was the one doing the giving, and he wasn't looking for anything back. Every single one of us should want to give when we come in here. Have we all made a commitment before Jesus Christ in public that church is not a place we go to be loved, but a place we go to love? I think we've all made that, repeatedly made it. And we continue to make it, and we will continue to make it. That's our definition. If I get off track and start explaining where that definition came from with all the verses that support it, I'll lose my expositional preaching through chapter 3. There are so many... Was Epaphroditus addicted to the ministry of the saints? Did he have a burden? Was Timothy unusual in that he had a desire for the well-being of the churches that was unlike anyone else's? All those verses just brought together. It is a cheerful and fervent burden and desire for the well-being of God's children that results in sacrificial and selfless action to get outside yourself to serve them in personal. I had intimate humility for their comfort in life, encouragement in heart, and perfection before Christ. What if we all did that toward each other? Amen. We'd be a great church. Not great for our honor and glory. Great in producing spiritual fruit for the glory of God. It'd be like we had brought 120,000 sheep to an altar and laid them there and God dropped fire down from heaven and burned it up because of what we'd be doing with each other. Because in the New Testament, that is the sacrifice that pleases God. Boy, would we with one mouth be glorifying God if we were treating each other like that? If the highest reached to the lowest... If the one farthest from you, you went after and embraced. If we treated everyone in here equally with our affection and desire for their well-being in heart, in comfort, in life, 
and their perfection before Christ. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. It's the evidence of eternal life. I'm preaching on a subject, assurance of eternal life. How can you know that you're saved? By loving the brethren. Because God is love, and the more you love, the more you look like God and are acting like God, so you must be born of God. It's that simple. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Verse 15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. I know what you're saying. Well, I don't hate my brethren in here. Oh, don't try to escape quite so quickly. Because hate in this verse means not to love. You say, how do you know that? Read verse 14. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. It's talking about brotherly love. If you don't do it, go ahead and call it hatred. It's like the relationship that Jacob had with Leah and Rachel. He didn't really hate Leah. He just didn't love Leah like he loved Rachel. The Bible tells us that and teaches us that. Sometimes we have to rightly divide the Word of God and figure out where hatred means not loving or loving less, and we have to figure out where hatred really means an act of positive indignation and wrath toward an object. And we've done that before, Romans 9.13, compared to Malachi 1.5, and we don't have a problem because of Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5, and Psalm 7.11 all teach us that there's a positive act of, act of indignation and wrath by Almighty God against sinners. Right. But here, it's not loving your brother, and he just calls it hatred to get your attention because you know that hatred equals murder, if you understand the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. When Jesus Christ opens up the Sixth Commandment, Does he say that you really have to hate someone in order to break the sixth commandment? Or does Jesus Christ say in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21, if you are angry with your brother, angry. Come on. Do you hate everybody you get angry with? Well, at the moment I do. Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause has broken the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Or calls him a fool or calls him racka. A worthless one without justifiable cause is guilty of the sixth commandment. And so he would find himself in verse 15 and there's no eternal life abiding in such a person. So we, we don't want to be angry without a cause. There's a, there needs to be a very just cause. That's why the apostle Paul would hold back his anger for so long against the Corinthian church. Have you read 1 Corinthians where he says, I'm coming to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm coming in love. Don't, please stop pushing me because when I have to come in a rod, you'll know my authority in Christ. But even in chapter, in the second epistle, he says, I'm coming to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. We don't want to show that we're lions until we have to. We want to be lambs and doves. Verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God. Perceive. To recognize something and to understand it. To recognize something and understand it. Hereby we recognize and understand the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. Wow. That is serious. You know, you might not have liked me using the word sacrificial and selfless in the definition of love, but once I read this verse, do you agree with me? that it should be pretty sacrificial and pretty selfless because God was sacrificial and selfless by laying down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
You know, the most difficult thing we have is laying down our comfort zone, laying down our habits, laying down our calendar, laying down our wallets. But those things should all be easy compared to laying down our lives. We ought to be willing to lay down our lives. In Acts chapter 2, when a church was full of the Holy Ghost, in verses 44 and 45, what did they do with their stuff? They sold it and gave toward everyone that had needs. They weren't communistic. It's just that there were a lot of visitors and poor believers in the city of Jerusalem, but they were taken care of by that church. And it goes on and describes that in chapter 2. It describes it in chapter 4. It describes it in chapter 5. It describes it in chapter 6 because they had to have seven deacons because there were such large collections being made for the large number of widows that were there made up of both Hebrew and Greek widows. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What keeps you back from going after every member in this church? Is it pride? Is it selfishness? Is it laziness? What is it? He laid down His life. Almighty God sent His Son and He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Getting with your friends in this church is not what this passage is talking about. You're getting too much pleasure out of that yourself. You need to go after the other ones to build this church up. Verse 17, but whoso hath this world's good, and this is the kind of love that's under consideration, I was taught, and I have taught, and there were times where I put too much emphasis on this, like there was always too much emphasis on this in my training, that love is rebuking each other. That is a little tiny part of love, and it has nothing to do with 1 John 3 and 4. 1 John 3 and 4 is what I've already described. Comfort in life, encouragement in heart, and perfection before Christ. Now that would involve some bearing of burdens and some rebuke and correcting. But the, but the majority of it is laying down our lives for another, like right here in this 17th verse. Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, and we shut up our bowels of compassion for all kinds of reasons. They don't deserve it. How in the world? You know, here's these are my words. I'll use my words instead of your words. There's only one Job in the history of the world. So when someone comes to me with their tenth problem in the world, tenth problem in a year, <laughs> right? Be careful with your trailers and chainsaws and trees. And I want to be a little bit personal. I have said many times, there's only one Job in the world. You know what? I believe it. And so, you know, we, we make excuses to, to shut up our bowels of compassion from another brother. And we want to guard against that. Right. When God looks down from heaven on you or me, does he have any reasons to say, I don't really think the blood of my son should be wasted on that guy? Is there... Is there any motivation for him to think that way? There's all the motivation in the world for God to have looked on me and said, just pass him over. The, the, Jesus Christ's blood will be on the rest of the elect. I'm going to pull him out of the book of life and put him where he belongs. God didn't do that. Right. We shouldn't do that. Right. It describes what we do in our hearts 
and we shouldn't do it. Whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need. If we know there's a need in this church and that need could be comfort of life, encouragement in heart or perfection before Christ and we shut up our bowels of compassion from him, notice you should have bowels. There should be feelings. It should turn you. It should move you. You should have compassion. It should be real. You should want to embrace. You should want to hug. You should feel very close to everyone in here. And you should get close. There should be bowels. Bowels are talking about what's inside right here in the middle of us. We we talk about our stomach turning upside down in youthful infatuation or meeting a person of the opposite sex or whatever. But here at these bowels of compassion, how can the love of God dwell in Him? How can you say that you love God when you have this person in front of you with a need and you have the means to satisfy their need, but you don't produce? How dwelleth the love of God in Him? We would say, it doesn't dwell in Him. He's showing that it doesn't dwell. Verse 18, my little children. Oh, are you hurt by being called a little child? When the Apostle John calls me a little child, I like it. I am a little child. I want to be like Solomon. I want us all to be like Solomon. Okay, Lord, you want to address me as a little child? Teach me something. Let us not love in word like singing, help us to help each other, Lord. Did we all just cut loose on that? Help us to help each other, Lord? Each other? Does that mean that we're all going to aggressively help each other and we're asking the Lord to bless our efforts? Uh-oh. We're all committed. Right. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. True love is performing. Deeds are actions. That's why I said that the definition of love has to lead toward action. You have to actually do something. You can't feel it, think it, sing it, or tell somebody about it. You've got to show it and do it. And if you do it with action, and you do it in truth, by laying down your life, by giving up things that are comfortable and desirable and pleasant to you for the benefit of another, look at what verse 19 teaches. And hereby... What what is hereby? Hereby is describing back to verse 18, loving in deed, which is action, and in truth, which is real love, as defined by giving up some of your life for the benefit of another. And hereby, we know that we are of the truth, because we're truly loving, and love is only of God, and shall assure our hearts before Him. In the sight of the omniscient God, who knows our hearts perfectly, you can assure your heart that you are a child of God by sacrificially giving up your life, your things, your time, your calendar, your money, your emotion for the benefit of another. Because that other is Christ. Not because they're likable, not because they're intellectual, not because they're fun to be with, but because they're Christ. Brotherly love. In this church where God has put together all kinds, some of which irritate the daylights out of us. And I, you. This is the truth. Amen. Hereby we know that we are of the truth. My brethren, I have heard for the last 37 years of my life, the statement made, I know that person is a child of God. Some of you have been around that long. You'll know exactly where I'm going. I know that person is a child of God because they believe the truth. Do you know what that statement has meant for the 37 years I've heard it? 
that they believe in election and predestination and regeneration comes before faith. That doesn't prove a cotton-picking thing. Mark your calendars that I was just gracious and merciful and discreet. The devils believe in election, predestination, that regeneration precedes faith. That isn't the evidence of a child of God. The Pharisees believed a great deal of truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth by loving indeed and in truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. You can assure your heart before God. Now verse 20. I have taught this verse differently in the past. Forgive me. And here now, the way I'm going to teach it to you right now. In verses 17 through 19, if you learn, we we could actually back up all the way to 16, if you learn that God, in His love towards you, in which you perceive real love, true love, is God laying down His life for us, therefore, we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for others, It ought not to be in word if we have what can be given for the benefit of another that is loving in deed and in truth. And by loving in deed and in truth, hereby we know that we are of the truth and we can assure our hearts before God. He has just taught you all the way through verse 19 that you can be sure of eternal life by loving like God loved you. Now in verse 20, it is the opposite side of the coin. Verse 20 is... For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. If in your heart you know that you have been selfish, proud, lazy, or hypocritical about loving others, more talk than performance, and you're condemned by your conscience, God is greater than your conscience. The heart, the heart The conscience is what accuses or else excuses you. So that by the word heart here, referring to an internal part of our apparatus, it's referring to our conscience. It's condemning us. If our heart condemns us because we know that we really haven't loved one another like God has loved us, God is greater than your heart and He knows your shortcomings to a greater degree than you do. Verse 20 is not a comforting verse. From that standpoint, I have taken that changed position on 1 John 3.20 because of it being sandwiched by verses 19 and 21. Because 21 bounces back to gaining our confidence. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then have we confidence toward God. The issue is your heart. By loving the way God loves you, you can assure your heart. Verse 19. Verse 21. Same thing. You can have confidence by loving like God loves. The Apostle Paul knew he loved like God loves. Because he was willing to spend and be spent for the Corinthians, though the more I love you, the less I be loved. Verse 20 is saying that if our heart tells us that we haven't been living up to God's standard of loving others, God knows it even better than we do, and that should be very serious to us. He has already explained how you can have complete confidence in your heart in verse 19 by telling you, hereby you may know that you are of the truth and assure your heart. And what is it? It's not taking confidence in God knowing your conscience better than you do. It's by loving the way that God loves. Now, if you want a little comfort in light of verse 
20, which I can't teach you as its primary intent, though I do believe that God's law is exceeding broad, and I do believe that there is inspired ambiguity sometimes in the verses of Scripture, allowing us large pictures. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that he didn't care if the Corinthians judged him. It is of little consequence to me if I be judged by you. I don't even judge myself, but God judgeth me. And the Apostle Paul was very comfortable with the fact that God was going to judge him because God is so much fairer than men are. Peter would say, when Jesus had confronted him three times, the third time he would just say, Lord, Thou knowest all things. Does that sound like verse 20? Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. So, Job would say in Job chapter 16, when he's telling his friends, this is ridiculous what you are doing to me. My record is on high. See, he's trusting in God. He knows that God is fairer than men are. And God is fairer than our hearts are sometimes, but I do not believe that is the primary intent of verse 20. I believe the primary intent of verse 20 is, if our conscience is bothering us that we have not loved like we should, then we should get busy loving. Because by getting busy loving, we can assure our hearts, verse 19, and we can have confidence, verse 21. The solution is given in verses 19 and 21. The solution is not given in 20. A warning is given in 20, and I move on. Verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Do you want your prayers to be answered better than they have in the past? Then keep his commandments, verses 1 through 10. Love the brethren that pleases him very much, verses 10 through 21. Verse 23. And this is his commandment. I like 20, 23 is just going to tie my opening passage of scripture this morning in with Galatians 5, 6. This is his commandment. This is his commandment, singular, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Do you want to boil the gospel down to its simplest elements? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and love the brethren. Faith, which worketh by love, Galatians 5, 6. 1 Peter 1, 22. Obeying the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren. One commandment. It's so tied together. It's faith, which worketh by love. Verse 23. That this is His commandment, that we should believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. You know, we think about we think about hearing of Jesus Christ, hearing the gospel message that He is the Son of God and what He did on earth and why He came and how He died and how He ascended up into heaven and how He is seated at God's right hand. We hear that and we believe that and we're baptized and see everything is individual so far. Everything is individual. Believing on Jesus Christ is individual. It's personal. It's me. It's my relationship with God. Baptism is the answer of my conscience toward God, my good conscience toward God. It's individual. It's personal. But God has ordained and appointed a family. And so once we get past that initial act of becoming a Christian, 
of choosing to follow Christ by believing on Him and being baptized, then God's love toward us and our love toward Him should extend toward that family that He loves. And so love is tied right in with our faith. We cannot have one by itself. It's dead. It's devilish. We want that faith working by love. Verse 24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. You know, when we live righteously and keep God's commandments, and one of God's commandments, verse 11 of this third chapter, is to love one another. When we love one another, God dwells in us, and we dwell in God, and we're as tightly united with God as we can possibly be. And if we're united with God right now, then we've been united with God from before the foundation of the world. But I sure want to know if God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the way I know it is keeping His commandments. And that's purifying myself, and that's loving the brethren. And hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. How do you know that God's in you from a second standpoint? Because without the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you wouldn't love me. You couldn't love me, and you shouldn't love me. Let's just get right down where it's understandable. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. This is not the spirit bearing witness inside us because that's taught in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4. This is the spirit working through us and showing us things that we would not do by nature. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 9 and 10, Paul told the Thessalonians that you love because you have been taught of God to love one another. And yet, he said, I would have you increase more and more. Didn't Peter say that because we were born again, he could see that they had obeyed the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren? Yet he said, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. So though the Holy Spirit is already showing us that we're the children of God by the love that we have toward one another, let's increase in that evidence of eternal life by loving each other other more than we have before. 